You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, well, uh, why don't we get things rolling? Um, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this installment of the Krika lecture series. My name is Ted Gerber, and I'm the faculty director of Krika. And as I've mentioned, this is a weekly uh, lecture series, so you can get the entire schedule. So every week we have lectures at the same time, 4 p.m. Central Time. And uh, we invite you to visit our website, uh, which is krika.wisc.edu. Um, and there you can drag down on the events menu and see um, the uh, schedule for the remainder of the semester. Uh, in particular, let me announce next week's talk, which is going to be by uh, Professor uh, Catherine Graber, who is actually assistant professor of anthropology from Indiana University in Bloomington. And this event will actually be co-hosted, co-sponsored with Indiana. Um, and her talk will be entitled Mixed Messages, Mediating Native Belonging in Asian Russia. Okay, so please tune in next week. Um, today, uh, before I turn the floor over to my colleague who will introduce our speakers today, uh, just a few quick logistical notes. So we ask that you mute your mics and your video for the, during the lectures and also to hold your questions until the end. Um, and that includes, uh, please refrain from using the chat uh, function in Zoom to give questions because it's just kind of distracting. It takes attention away from the speaker. So we really ask you to hold your questions and to ask them directly at the end uh, by using the raise hand button, which you can get under the participants key or the participants window in Zoom. If you have a real uh, problem doing that, you still want to ask a question, then go ahead and send a, put a question in the chat after the end, and we'll I'll, I'll keep an eye on the chat then. So I will, uh, but I will ask people, you know, really to hold their questions and to use the raise hand function and give them directly. So now I'm going to ask my colleague Catherine Henley, who's the Roman Z. Livschitz and William Voss Baskin Professor of Law here at UW, and also a professor of political science, to introduce our three panelists for today. So Kathy, take it away. Thanks very much, Ted. Uh, I feel like we're, we have a bounty here today because uh, we have three people who are going to be able to share their thoughts with us on the role of gender uh, in this presentation called The Gendered Ambiguity of the Post-Communist Transition. Um, if you get a sense that the three of them know each other and get along well, uh, you're right, because they are just coming out of the process of editing a big, new, important volume, the Rutledge International Handbook of Gender in Central Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Uh, and those of us who have been in the trenches of editing volumes like this know that there's nothing that that uh, that brings you closer together than trying to do something like this. So hats off to them. Um, so let me introduce each of them. And uh, I'm not going to list all their publications. You can see that on the Creco website. It goes without saying that all of them have published widely on various aspects of gender and other topics. Um, so we have Janet Johnson, who is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College, City University of New York. Uh, a lot of her work is focused on gender in Russia, uh, though not exclusively. Um, our second participant is Kathleen Fabian, who is a professor of government and law at Lafayette College. 
um, and a lot of her work has focused on women in Hungary, although not exclusively. Um, both uh, um, Professor Johnson and Fabian have worked on domestic violence issues, which may come up today. And our third participant is Mara Lazda, who is an associate professor of history at Bronx Community College, the City University of New York. Um, and she, uh, her geographic focus is on Latvia. Um, and so I don't wanna take too much time extolling all of their virtues. I just wanna thank them for coming and say how much we're all looking forward to this presentation. So with that, I'll turn it over to, I think Janet is gonna get us, kick, is gonna kick us off, right? Yes, let me get all my technology going. Let's see, share my screen. And all right, everything's good. You can see my screen. Looks yes. good, looks good. All right. Well, it's an honor to be hosted by Krika. It's a, one of the Russian studies centers that I have never visited. And I wish someday that I can go and visit in, in Madison, but I'm glad to be here um, in this format. We're also really excited to present for the first time together on this forthcoming um, Routledge Handbook of Gender in Central uh, Eastern Europe and Eurasia. And it, it's a huge project, as Kathy mentioned. There's three editors, there's 50, more than 50 chapters, there's more than 60 authors. The book itself um, expands from the beginning of the 20th century to the, to the 21st century. Um, and it's, it's a social scientific handbook. So it comes out of the disciplines of gender studies, history, political science, anthropology, and other related disciplines. And I just added the little coupon for a discount in case you guys wanna like take a look at it. Um, the book is divided into six parts. Um, the first one is sort of the meta level of looking at the debates and the methodology, methodological and epistemological questions. We have a part that looks at feminist and women's movements. Part three and part four look at the, the pre-post-Soviet period, the pre-post-communist period, uh, looking at gender and different ideologies and the lived experiences of individuals in the various regimes of the 20th century. And the last two parts look at the post-communist part of this. And we're sort of zeroing in on the part um, on the ambiguous post-communist transitions with some thinking that pulls from the other parts of the book because we can't present the whole thing and we wanna actually do two things at once, which is one, give you um, some insight into what the book is about, but also kind of push forward what we've learned from working together and what we've learned from thinking about this um, through this collaboration. So today I'm gonna to talk first about ambiguity, intersectionality and informality, followed by Mara Lazda, who will speak about the lived experience, interdisciplinarity and continuities, and followed last but not least by Catalin Fabian, who will talk about ambiguity as an analytical lens and the debates. So ambiguity. So we decided to use the concept of ambiguity and I'm gonna take my stance as a political scientist to explain why by looking at the concepts of intersectionality and informality. So in 2017, Kristen Godsey published a opinion piece in the New York Times, which basically argued that women had better sex under socialism. I mean, the argument was catchy. It was more that, that, that socialism was better for women than unregulated capitalism. And it turned into a widely read book um, uh, of the same title. And, and this, we're not gonna take um, Godsey's argument on head on, but it, it is the first foray, it is a, the, the most recent foray into a longstanding debate that has been central to the study of gender in the post-communist period. And it's, it, it's, it, it speaks to the broad questions of what, as to whether the political economic transitions were bad for women and whether they were worse for women than they were for men. 
And our, our project um, is to move, we think that the literature has moved beyond these central but unanswerable questions. And our project has been to use ambiguity as an analytical lens, which is rich and multi-layered with complex and contradictory meanings, reflecting the ambiguity of gendered lived experience, speaking to the uncertainty and instability of the post-communist period. It's not that we think that we can't answer the question, it's that we can see both a duck and a rabbit. So to give some evidence to kind of make this more concrete, um, I'm gonna look a little bit at the economic and political transitions so, and show how they're ambiguous. So the economic transition, I think we can say four decades out that there has been increased precarity for most women as a result of the economic reforms that were put into place. And this is a result of drastic cutting of state jobs and social services made worse by the austerity measures after the global financial crisis. But at the same time, you can see a lot of ambiguity. So deindustrialization de in specific was especially hard for working class men. Um, the transition more broadly was hard for all disabled people, although there may be gendered and sexualized dynamics. It was hard for our all rural residents. And for all folks, there is a sense that there's been kind of a roller coaster. So it's not just that people um, are stuck into various segments, but sometimes they're up and sometimes they're down, making it really hard to make a sim simple or simplistic uh, mapping of what's going on. And even as there's been increased precarity for most women, some women who have been privileged by class, nationality, religion, and post-communist generation have been able to take advantage of new economic, political, and migration opportunities. So to take the second dimension of the transition, the political one, democracy offered great promise to women, although there was a much, um, talked about huge drop in the number of women in the first post-communist elections or the late communist elections over the 10 elections that have happened, um, eight, nine or 10 elections that have happened since the transition, there has been a marked increase of the number of women or the proportion of women in um, the, the legislatures. But at the same time, democracy has been thin throughout the region and in decline throughout the region. So you can see on the right that every sub-region of the broader part of Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia has been has had democracy decline over the last decade. And it's not, it's not an ungendered phenomenon because governing elites have turned to sexism, homophobia, racism, and xenophobia to justify their uh, retrenchment on democracy. So we can see in that level that those transitions are more ambiguous than that there is amb ambiguity. So I wanna turn, that's the empirical evidence. I wanna to turn to kind of the conceptual arguments for why this is so. And the first is intersectionality. So those of you who are from gender or critical theory understand what this is, but maybe those of us who are in, in, in post-communist studies are not as familiar. Intersectionality is a concept that comes out of black women's uh, critique of approaches that were trying to explain their problems through a combination of the problems of black men, plus the combination of white women. And intersectionality is one that looks at all of these combination of various factors like race, class, gender, sexuality in, in, in intersection with each other. It implies a critique of the Marxist dual system that claims that it's possible to separate patriarchy and capitalism. It's also different from the notions of double burden where social structures were seen to layer on top of each other. So we see um, intersectionality as the dynamic matrix through which various structures of power operate, not just autonomously, but in combination with each other. And just to kind of visually represent that, there's been a, a, a convention to see them as separate, but we argue, and, and I think most at least political science intersectionality theory 
thinks about them as social or political structures that have both autonomous and intersectional effect. In one of our chapters by Joanna Rogolska and Sophia Roldershik, they, they map out a very complex, um, uh, you can see the diagram here, for how uh, construction of gender and how actors, processes, and structures work together to, to, to make up what happens in terms of gender. Um, here I'm going to highlight the intersections that, that the literature has pointed out as being most relevant in this region, which are class, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ, state, post or decoloniality, disability, ability, and age cohort, whether socialized by communism or the transitions. So what I'm arguing is that from when we take intersectionality seriously, which requires, see, requires us move, to move from looking at the question in terms of women to looking at the gender as an analytical category that helps us understand the social structure that disadvantages and advantages people, not just the binaries of women and men, but all those, uh, the, the various categorizations of those who do not fit those binary categories. Um, if we take those analytical concepts, then ambiguity is useful, not because we can't tease out the gendered component, but to represent the full range of lived experiences of all folks who are differently situated by gender. Um, the second analytical, excuse me, water break. The second analytical insight that I wanna bring from political science comes out of more directly out of my own research, which is to take informality seriously. So informality to quote Lilinova is an umbrella term for a variety of social and cultural phenomenon, such as the world's open secrets, unwritten rules and hidden practices that are assembled as ways of getting things done. So I could spend an hour talking about informality, but but those of us who know this part of the world know that communism was rife with informality, whether it was sort of the informal exchanges or blood or ways of working around the system, that that sort of was the system. And if we take that seriously, then we have to see that the that the transitions, the democrat, the democratic, the political and economic transitions were more ambiguous than than they seem. Right? Even even if we're critical of how effective they've been, they were. Um, th there's more continuity of informal practices that happened than we had originally. Well, not we, but. I think than the literature had suggested. And so we have, for example, insider privatization by male dominated elites. We have oligarchs who have tremendous political power. We have male dominated oligarchy and kleptocracies, various ways we could talk about these regimes, but they're, they have these informal practices deeply embedded in them. <laughs> And so the transitions themselves are ambiguous because of informality, but also the consequences of this informality is ambiguous. On the one hand, as I argue in my most recent book, there is a kind of gendered bait and switch with the formal institutions and policies promising gender equality subverted by the male dominated informal rules and practices. And in, in the handbook, there's a chapter, for example, by Alex Herzog, who makes that argument in terms of what happens in domestic violence activism in Ukraine. But on the other hand, it's, it's not just a negative thing, right? Women and feminist activists have long been able to use informality to their own ends, challenging powerful institutions and colonial legacies. So that's, that's my part and I'm turning it over to Mara. Let me stop my share. Thank you. All right. 
right, thank you. Thank you, Janet, for starting us. And thank you, Krika, for hosting. Um, I'm also happy because I'm a I'm an Eau Claire, Wisconsin native, so I feel kind of kind of a mini homecoming here as well. So, um, so I'm going to pick up where Janet has led us, and I'm going to dive a little bit more deeply into practices in the form of practices of daily life or scholarship on the gendered lived experience and on the lived experiences of communism and post-communism. So working on this collaborative project, uh, collaborating just not, not just with two editors, with Janet and Kathleen, but also, as she mentioned, as Janet mentioned, with over 60 other authors, um, prompted us to reflect, which was our goal, on, um, on the field of gender studies um, in Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia, on the region. But I think it also made us, certainly me, and I think Janet and Kathleen as well, think about um, our own role in the field, how we got here, and um, how we chose the disciplines we did. Um, one, so I'll touch a little bit on the interdisciplinarity of the project that I'm a historian and um, Janet and Kathleen are political scientists. And, um, and our, author, our authors also came from anthropology, sociology, um, cultural studies. So finding a common language was sometimes um, both a challenge and also exhilarating. So, but, uh, so if, if uh, uncharacteristically for me, I wanna talk a little bit about how I came to this field. Um, as the daughter of Latvian emigres, I have a personal family connection to the region, but I realized as I was preparing my comments for today, my interest in lived experience, and this is something that I've um, I focused on in my own uh, work as a historian on, on the uh, study of everyday life. I realized that my first exposure to this was tied to my extended visit to Poland um, in 1983. And, um, and you know, martial law had been lifted, but I was 13 years old at the time. But there was very much, Poland was very much under the spirit of, or, you know, we, we arrived in Poland knowing about these larger historical events, right, of solidarity associated with the um, like, iconic figures of Anna Valentinovich and Lech Wałęsa. And this was you know, the, the broader narrative that I knew going into my stay in Poland as a young teenager. But what I remember still to this day, um, and what left that's the deepest impression, was our participation in the rituals of daily life. So our, um, you know, we lived in a Polish dorm, um, Dom Studenski Piast in Krakow. <laughs> we um, purchased sugar using, we learned how to use the ration cards. I looked forward to buying treats at the Pevex hard currency store. And of course, some of the, um, some of the daily rituals or some of the, the witnessing of the practices of everyday life were much more sobering, even as, again, a young teenager, uh, you know, was, I uh, was very much moved and uh, awed by the persistence of, with which crosses of flowers appeared each night to support solidarity. And there were just as, with as much persistence swept away um, in the middle of the night. So what does my personal journey have to do with a larger discussion today about gendered ambiguities and this project? So reflecting on this experience in Poland reminded me why I was drawn to history 
as a discipline because I was interested and I felt a connection to um, this history from below and um, understanding, trying to understand these larger events through the, through the lives of individuals. I dabbled, I did dabble in political science um, as a, in, in college, but I decidedly and simplistically thought that, um, that political science was too, too focused on theory um, and didn't, didn't sufficiently incorporate uh, the individual experience, um, which I now have come to think otherwise. But this was, but this was yeah, I found my, my place in history. And working on this interdisciplinary, but working on this interdisciplinary project, working on this interdisciplinary team has also helped me shift my thinking about how to approach everyday life, um, the study of everyday life. And I think helped me find a language through everyday life and specifically incorporating these ideas of ambiguity in everyday life um, in ways that I think can we can build on and foster more of this interdisciplinary uh, theorization and collaboration in thinking about the region itself. So what I'd like to do is kind of briefly go over kind of what I see as four trends in, every, in, the, in the study of everyday life um, in the region and how, and how we propose through our work, um, through reflecting on, on the volume, what uh, ambiguity in everyday life might contribute to, to the field. So, um, so the first trend, kind of trend and trend, um, and I think trying to, trying to encompass both the overlapping periodization as well as the, um, the approaches in, in the disciplines themselves, we kind of see in, with Glasnost, but even before Glasnost, using reclaiming history, reclaiming the experiences of individuals as a way in which to challenge the greater narratives. So a way, a way in which to challenge, for example, um, from propaganda and ideology. So you know, looking at the poster I have on the right about the, the brotherhood, brotherhood of people in Latvia, but rather um, centering the experiences of witnesses and participants and scholars in, in, in complicating um, this kind of monolithic ideology. Now, if we think about ambiguity, and that might be something we want to discuss in our question and answer, how do we, how do we define ambiguity? If we think about it in terms of, um, in terms of um, multiple perspectives or inexactness, I could say this first trend there's a remarkable lack of ambiguity. For on the one hand, the the propaganda of the Soviet of the Soviet of the communist um, narratives was countered by one might say an equally unambiguous nationalist narrative. We may also want to you know in, the, in this um, conversation on ambiguity, there's certain aspects that we may put aside or try to incorporate you know, as unambiguous, and that is the violence itself of um, of some of the communist regimes and, um, and even the, the violence that, um, the, per the personal violence as well that was present. But in this first period is also striking how much the in integration of gender and in particular uh, the neo-traditional neo -traditional images that, that um, Janet um, has written about was also incorporated into um, the the, re, the, re, the shifting narrative of everyday life. 
The second trend um, is also incorporate is also tied to kind of broader shifts in history um, and in other regions. So certainly the field the fields of everyday life in um, Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia was also a conversation with several other developments. One of that was one of Alltagsgeschichte. Um, most famously, most notably represented by Elf Lutke and Michelle Vissertu, in the sense of, and especially focusing on another kind of totalitarian regime, that of um, National Socialism, and looking at how, um, you know, what were the individual reactions, in, individual interactions with such a totalitarian um, power, but noting that, um, noting, you know, within the in everyday life, the pockets of resistance, as well as the pockets of collaboration. At the same time, um, I, we also uh, see a shift in, in the large in the historical discipline itself in, in the incorporation of gender. So you see that in the 1980s, um, kind of, you know, this confluence of these different different directions, both of looking at um, history from below with Alltagsgeschichte, but also you know, recognizing gender itself as and perhaps an ambiguous, perhaps a malleable category of analysis that is a particularly conducive to showing these different levels of power in um, in uh, the history of everyday life. And you know, and as and as I've noted here, two of the most you know, noteworthy right pioneers in this, um, and especially in the Soviet studies, were Sheila Fitzpatrick and Masha Levin. So. And in effect, you know, turning to these kinds of sources that document everyday life, so diaries, um, letters, recipes, for, you know, shapes the, the discipline of history itself and kind of a foundation of feminist historiography. Okay. Now, this brings us also to, you know, shifting where we looked, where we looked for this history, um, not only in Kind of in the archives, but also looking at in practice in the use of um, in the use of uh, the newspapers, the propagandas, the um, spaces of education, but also um, you know shifting from a public sphere into the private sphere. Now this brings us me to look to this um, look at thinking more about what we refer to as ambiguities and distinguishing between ambiguities and what it means for the individual and ambiguities and what it means for the regime. So ambiguities, again, if we look at the like a general definition of ambiguity, we may think of it as inexactness or multiple perspectives, or in some ways trying to um, articulate and describe conflicting or complex relationships. But I'm really, um, I find it very applicable and um, useful, this concept of recognizing that ambiguity can in fact be a tool for individuals. And in, and in the words of Catherine Lebo, an intended ambiguity. In other words, this is not um, and kind of an accidental or unintentional act by individuals to interact with or to resist or to, um, or, or to uh, uh, collaborate with the um, regime, but rather there's an intention in the ambiguity to, inten to intentionally choose action that can be interpreted in different ways. And in this means, and in this way, um, also leave, leave their intentions um, unknown. 
At the same time, the intent and ambiguity extends to regimes as well as to ideologies. Now in our, um, we see this in our handbook itself in the work with um, Alice Weinreb who writes on East German collective eating establishments where she writes that, um, where she looks at the practices of uh, collective eating, of, of collective, um, of uh, state-sponsored cafeterias, state-sponsored uh, workers' canteens, as a way in which to, um, as, a, as a means by which to emancipate women, to take the cooking, to freeing them from the cooking and um, the, uh, the confines of domestic life. But at the same time, these, she writes that the collective eating establishments confirmed rather than challenged the societal necessity of female cooking. That in fact, factory and school eating halls enabled women to join the workforce in record-breaking numbers, but the male planners of the GDR continued to perceive cooking as definitionally a female activity. So in other words, when we, when we look for ambig ambiguity, the tendency might be to look in the actions of individuals, when in fact, we want to argue that this ambiguity is just as crucial for, um, for the building of and the legitimization of different ideologies during the communist and we'll see as post-communist period. So in effect, by recognizing the intentionality of ambiguity, it also changes the questions we ask, um, not just to think about whether women were faring better or worse before or during the transitions, but also thinking about the continuities um, across these time periods. The third trend that comes out when we begin to look at the, amb the ambiguous nature of the everyday experience is, um, as Janet mentioned, this component of intersectionality and the continuing impacts of colonialism. Now we see this in particular um, in the interactions between, the, um, between Soviet Russia and, um, and the um, other ethnicities of the Soviet empire. Uh, and in particular, looking at the work of Sturkel and Zuchlin, as well as uh, Graskova in Central Asia. And they write that Soviet modernity was an imperial formation and not just an alternative to capitalist and Western modernity. And when you begin to look at the interactions, um, when you consider the, the question of race, when you consider the question of ethnicity and ideology in everyday life, um, we begin to see how ambiguity can all, ambiguity also means measuring and revealing the different experiences within the center and in the periphery. I'm seeing I'm running out of time here, so I'll quickly go to the fourth trend. Uh, the fourth trend then is considering how lived experiences, when we consider how ambiguity is a form of, kind of intended action and not just a, um, a reflection of different perspectives, we begin to see that uh, how ambiguity is used across time periods um, from the communist to the post-communist um, transition periods. And as such, and it makes us think about the periodization and the um, geographic boundaries of the, of the region itself in different ways. Um, this allows us to kind of blur the lines between revisionism and totalitarianism. If we see, if we begin to see um, 
look at you know, rather than center on the individual actions, but looking at um, kind of the, the trends of um, of the nature of these of the of the everyday experience. And lived experience points to the ambiguity of everyday life, but also to the ambiguity built into ideologies, communist and post-communist. And I'll, I'll stop there. Kathleen? Well, if you uh, stop sharing, I'll come in. <laughs> I still see you, Mara. Um, all right, here we are. Okay, well, I hope our audience in 25-ish in its uh, numbers sees that I have the easiest job after these um, slightly um, easy, straightforward, uncomplicated processes. I'm only gonna talk about ideology and the interpretations of gender, which we are working on. And many of us in this group and beyond, I think we'll continue this job. Um, I and others would welcome further comments. Uh, these tools we have learned from others and we build on previous uh, very extensive literature. So many of you will be familiar with these questions. And I think it's a rather important set of questions which we have not yet found the answers for. The we meaning a broader um, set of scholarly communities. So these problems for which we have different answers um, and different methodologies to come to these answers include how we call the region. Is, is there even a region uh, after now over 30 years of uh, the purported end of communism and supposedly the end of the Cold War? So we did have and we'll continue to have a debate on what the region is. Should we still consider it as such? What kind of projection, historical, ideological, methodological that may be? There is one Europe um, or maybe it's divided again. So is this a Central Europe? Is this an Eastern Europe? Is it Europe? Is it a Eurasia? So even in the term, what we called for this handbook, which we did debate, um, at least uh, a few of our colleagues also chimed in in this regard, uh, there is not one answer, but many. Same thing, and we did not put, or feed dancing from here on, you call the previous system communist, or you call it state socialist or you call it Soviet-style communism. Each of our, the authors in this handbook had their own choice in this regard, while we recognize that these are ideologically driven and very strong consequences, depending on what terminology we use. They carry different assumptions, certainly different consequences, significance uh, to what term we use for that period, while we recognize the deeply varied histories and experiences both on the elite and on the everyday level, often dramatically changing on those positions during the communist and the most recent communist period. And that includes the gendered experience. So while many of us tend to focus on a linguistic or analytical definition of a particular term, uh, the biggest amount of literature, the continuing debates are, uh, should we focus on women? Whom do we define as women? 
who qualifies as such. Um, and these are the new trends uh, debates in uh, this country, the United States and beyond, uh, especially in East Central Europe, which certainly has not moved on, unlike supposedly the US to race, um, but very much engages with the debates, what so many of us call a war on gender. So the same thing we try to do and continue to analyze about ambiguity, and indeed we want to use it as an analytical term. So as Janet and Mara have noted, um, we do talk about both the handbook, but also the newly emerging uh, branches, what it has provided us to further investigate. We realize in each of these choices, there are contextual, political, i.e. ideologically normatively driven consequences, which then further carry, how do we measure kind of methodological aspects and further policy consequences. So I wanna take you from here a few history lessons about the literature as we know it on this field, both East and West. And again, I'm putting those in quotations and I will tell you why. Um, and that is the, what we call today as gender studies of Central and Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Um, we call it today as gender studies, but it used to be women's studies and it likely uh, be combined under most uh, terminologies, women's and gender studies. Would it be queer studies today? Uh, so that we include and recognize the continuity and the various uh, interpretations of how we live gender and how we understand it as a position. So from the 1970s, and of course there's much before it, uh, but, but this is sort of where our intellectual mothers are, but as Mara said, of our own mothers, of course we keep learning from even after the long time past. So these are the long time past studies from the 1970s, which laid the groundwork for where uh, the literature has gone in the 1980s and the 1990s. Now I used again the image where we started this set of slides and that is a girl from uh, Getty Images in the 1990s, you can see her um, clothing, hairstyle, etc. But also we thought that this image would carry some of the notions of ambiguity. How do you interpret it? What did she see at that time with that chewing gum bubble? So um, the 1970s leads to the discussions uh, on its this debates on gender equality and state socialism or communism, still about the debates, how do women live under this dramatically different set of conditions? And it is only the 1980s when both East and West are starting to focus not exclusively on women, but masculinities, what we also consider as the framework of gender and how this bipolarity and eventually much broader than bipolarity definitions uh, relate to each other, how the gender roles have changed. Now, this created what most of us would look at today, an enormous and extremely rich set of literatures. These multiple transitions, probably all of you have studied in different angles, uh, produce analysis about the various political regimes from authoritarianism to democracy, and in most cases, back again. Economies, how the command economies um, have transitioned to capitalism and to what extent they maintained 
their previous characteristics? How did women benefit from that? As God say, so many uh, avenues have highlighted. The very complicated hierarchies of Europeanization, the emerging new border conflicts, as I see Central and Eastern Europe switching sides again, as it had done so many times in history, similarly to Central Asia, which also included all kinds of global flows, migrations, some by choice, others many times by force, uh, by displacements. But we can draw a line where it is a choice and a force. Often these are fluid uh, or both types of um, choices and forces coming into um, people's lives and also how policies relate to that. Here comes that analytical application of ambiguity. This both doesn't mean everything works, but from different perspectives, different ideologies, we can highlight why and how these processes have taken place. So this is where we also start to note the role of ideology in constructing gender, what kind of roles are acceptable in the newly emerging regimes, and how different it is, again, just like in history, what the ideology is compared to what the lived experience highlights. So this is an enormous dialogue some of us will call as debates in between these experiences. The next debate which comes up is greatly in support of these uh, Western financial and normative supports for women's organizing, which then many, such as Kristen Gortze, see it as highly damaging um, because they strengthen and further heighten what we call neoliberal forces in the form of NGOs uh, jumping through the hoops of um, funders. So there are a few issues, and one was already mentioned, domestic violence, which I likened to a, a very narrow tube, a very important tube, don't hear me wrong, but literally it replaced many of the other welfare issues, which were so substantial in previous research and policy and activism. So this becomes the term, the issue, along with other types of violence against women, which then much has been rejected, saying this is a Western framework um, entirely supported by a particular liberal interpretation. However, reproductive rights, literally from the first day of these new states emerging, renaming themselves from communist um, to their contemporary names, highlight the notion of who has right, and you see this continuing in the last 30 years in Poland, the access to contraception and the more recent uh, emergence of IVF and surrogacy, highlighting again the notion of inequality. Is it a choice, a force, or somewhere in between? So many aspects of women's agency and structure would come back again very strong, saying it's a debate between the perspectives. So we see this, and there is a phenomenal chapter, which I highly recommend for those of you uh, getting this handbook, uh, in the Hinterhuber Fox uh, chapter, which highlights this historical development of the debates. 
these are historical to the extent that they start in the 1990s. So depending on your age, it's historical or contemporary. All right. So in the 1990s, uh, the main question was whether Western feminist theory can be applied one-to-one -to, -one to Central and Eastern Europe and Eurasia. And of course, the liberal mindset would say, of course it is. However, there is an enormous pushback to that. And there are some of us, um, and I much like Jan uh, Janet's uh, term, this is what she calls me and a few of us, we are halflings, kind of translating um, and also getting deeply stuck uh, between these different frameworks. Are we part of the dialogue? Do we have dominance? Who is the in or the out? Now that continues in the turn of this uh, millennium. How to evaluate post-communist feminist activism? I already highlighted this continuing debate. Um, would the NGOs be the handmaidens of neoliberalism as Gotze argues, or are they providing agency and opportunities to women? And this evaluation will lead today a dramatic ideological division. Are we um, revisionists saying, you know, communism was better to whatever extent or degree, uh, as there are new threats to women's uh, choices and agency. And this brings me to the last um, piece. Of course, there is much more. What we think about and continue to deliberate on and I really like this framework, which we call debates, which we can call at least with a little bit of a distance as identifiable intellectual frameworks. Most of them are highly ideological, either explicitly or implicitly. They, uh, they identify norms and values and who should do what, when and how, i.e. who has power. And that's why Central and Eastern Europe with its communist or state socialist, um, Soviet style communist experience matters a great deal. For instance, also about what feminism is and what kind of message should it carry, especially as you think about March 8th coming this coming Monday, which is um, traveled from uh, Bulgaria to the UN uh, with Soviet initiation. So, there was a declaratively different uh, regime, although in many of it, it has carried some of those continuities of um, hierarchies between the sexes. Now, I use this term pluralism, and I'm not making an equation here with ambiguity, but pluralism allows for the multiplicity of voices to emerge from top and bottom sideways um, to creating some kind of synchronicity to allow for this often contradictory and not necessarily complementary perspectives to emerge. So you have heard many of these terms already, intersectionality, interdisciplinarity, lived experience, and at the same time recognizing the enormous power of both global and local hierarchies and structures. So this data and our methodology, how we define things matters, and this brings us to those deeply political debates, what we have today, which is a different angle. This is the war on gender. It's a transnational appearance. Um, in the USA, you could be called culture wars from Poland to uh, Russia and contemporary Central Asia. Uh, this debate 
is continuing from women's leadership to everyday experiences, what women could, should do, what is the role of uh, queer LGBTQ um, experiences and how to engage that in our communities. So thank you. Thank you very much uh, to all three of you for you know this fantastic introduction to this great project. I mean, I'm just uh, I'm just uh, really excited about uh, the body of work that you have assembled, and you know I know it's uh, probably been quite a challenge to reflect on. You know, how do you uh, sort of uh, sort through all of these perspectives, uh, the different disciplines, the different uh, countries, you know, the different uh, languages, uh, research traditions, different paradigms, and you know, it's really, uh, you certainly piqued my interest in this uh, fantastic project. So uh, with that, I will open the floor to questions. I see that some people have been posting some uh, questions in the chat already, but as I said, you know, we ask people to use the raise hand function um, and ask your questions in person. So, you know, maybe while people are, are thinking and reflecting and sort of shifting gears, I will start off with a question. And that is uh, the following. So, you know, I'm, I'm uh, imagine that one of the you know themes that uh, is covered in your volume, but but uh, I didn't really hear any three of you mention it explicitly today. So I'm curious in what your thoughts or findings or perspectives are in particular on the question of how uh, gender issues relate to uh, nationalism and nationalisms, uh, which have been one you know big feature of the transition experience both in the former Soviet republics and also in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, you know, I know that the different scholars have analyzed gender and nationalism in different ways. Is that uh, is there a separate chapter or a section on that particular issue? Uh, maybe you can address uh, as you see fit uh, what you found in this collective research endeavor. Uh, are there any sort of takeaway points, broad findings with respect to the relationship between gender issues and nationalism? Any, uh, oh no. I think that's Mara's. <laughs> no, I was saying, I think maybe it's useful to put up the, um, I guess I can do it, the table of contents, but um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think you know, uh, uh, two, two points I want to make. One is um, we, a long conversation we had was about how to organize the volume. Right. And, you know, are we going to do it by you know, chronologically, by region, by theme? Because certainly one could be nationalism, right? When we could have had a whole section just on nationalism and how it evolves. Um, but um, so we, we chose, I'm mean, going to see, I don't know if you were putting it up, I'll put it up. Um, uh, so we so we chose something in the middle. It was kind it's kind of thematic and um, and and uh, analog and analog side periods. But what you, you will find in each is that nationalism and sexuality and gender certainly that is again like one continuity that we have throughout um, and pointed us <laughs> to this to this idea that um, there's more continuities than ruptures in each period. Um, and they they refer to each other. I mean, that is you know one national one nationalism one nationalism's uh, you know, pr uh, conceptualization of gender in, in traditional forms is something that we see uh, kind of mutate. Maybe, but there are certain consistencies. At the same time, um, what we're excited about is as we've moved from just looking at 
women and gender, but also opening to sexualities, which is what uh, several of these chapters thinking about, um, you know, Anita Kurumay's chapter, that there we find much, much more um, inconsistencies and not inconsistencies, uh, ambiguities, but also kind of, I just, I mean, there, that's a good example of intended ambiguities to allow for um, more um, flexible ideas of masculinity, of um, even male homosexuality versus um, women's homosexuality. So, um, I mean, I've thrown a lot of ideas there for you, but, um, and maybe, you know, Janet and, or Kathleen can pick up, but that is, it certainly is a driving force in the region. But I think what this volume does, it does make it more complicated. Um, but I think it's a very good example of kind of being inten intentionally ambiguous to, um, I mean, to build a nationalist movement, to actually have, make them make using gender and ambiguous gender in a way to have build a more inclusive nationalism, inclusive nationalism. I, I hope I'm showing at least some of the chapters, but including Anita Kurimai, whose uh, book is just coming out on nationalism and sexuality in Central and Eastern Europe, which is what she was referring to. But in this um, series, um, we, we, we had really an overlap uh, between what, what is the ideology, what's the lived experience, and how do they feed uh, back to each other? Uh, so I just uh, wanted to highlight. Janet, do you want to come in? And then I'm happy to chime in further. No, keep going. So it, it is an enormously powerful force, as uh, the question already highlighted. Uh, we do have a few other by Agnieszka Graf, who also wrote a lot on the um, ongoing uh, gender wars, uh, originally starting from at least the appearance, it seemed like uh, picking up first in Poland, in part because of the very powerful voice of the Roman Catholic uh, Church. But then it was very clearly emerging in many other parts of both this region, but uh, Western Europe and the United States as well. So what it appeared that it is not a religious, but a much more politically um, influenced process where nationalism creates its own gender hierarchy, endorsing what you heard us refer to, but it's neo-traditionalism, which we try to investigate. Uh, what kind of imagined traditionalism that is, it's not a given, it's a deeply political process. What is absolutely stunning, and I think so much uh, drew uh, scholars in this regard, how can it be both transnational and national at the same time? The traveling um, forms and political entities, including even some speakers from the United States, but it's also deeply sponsored by Russia. You would find um, uh, all kinds of organizations which then um, sponsor uh, this political movement, engaging with uh, religions, religious organizations, NGOs. And uh, that's why, in part, I use that reference to the rebellious uh, parents book, which uh, which I, I edited with Asbieta Koro. Uh, where, where we, a few years ago, we could see that gender is exploding. <laughs> that was two uh, parents carrying, uh, that's the image what you would have on this uh, uh, talk for today too, um, that, that, that the people were willing to, and 
very uh, much seeing gender as a threat to their own self, and especially as they project it to the nation and their own communities and values. So gender has become a dramatically politically um, heavy term, and one reason why feminists um, have been in a, in a dramatic defensive um, it has become not just the gender studies has become deeply marginalized and uh, victimized and literally being kicked out from many countries and universities. It, 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 it has been equated to Nazism. And that's a heavy term in this part of the world. But this has been a political message saying not through all that bodies. And they got uh, state support, especially in Poland, Russia and Hungary. Yes, well, that is, uh, yeah, that certainly uh, sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly familiar with Russia, but certainly uh, it's, it's uh, uh, been quite chilling to see, you know, how at least certain predominant nationalist narratives have indeed you know, portrayed gender studies, feminism as this foreign Western evil thing that needs to be crushed. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I always wonder, you know, when thinking about these things is what's driving what? Like, is it the... So clearly, you know, the, the entrepreneur, ideological entrepreneurs who promote these nationalist ideas have some interest in trying to manipulate, to try to gain more followers, uh, try to demonize or otherize uh, intellectual and other, you know, tendencies. Um, but how, how much are they manufacturing, I wonder, you know, those kinds of uh, attitudes versus playing on existing, uh, you know, prejudices and so forth. But um, I mean, no, these are big questions. Uh, Jim, do you want to add anything to the discussion of nationalism or should we see if there's other questions? I mean, just to say that I think that is an interaction, right? Like, you know, especially you can see in the Putin regime as, as you know, looking at public opinion data, right? Like there's both this kind of move, like let's see if that sticks and let's be a little more traditionalist starting in 2013, 14. Um, I'm working on a project with Valerie Sperling and Lisa McIntosh Sundstrom and Alexander Namitsky looking at Putin's speeches and sort of mapping the gender language shift Right. And so there's this kind of like shift towards traditionalism, like see if it sticks. And then, you know, there's movement, I think, in the population and there's, um, you know, ways in which the population responds, but then also resists. And then, you know, I think in some ways it becomes very interesting for Putin because I think he's promoted this this ultra conservative neo this anti genderism and it's more than he wanted it to go. Right. So there's also this kind of navigating between all of these various strands, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, and, and, and one of the things that comes out of this is looking at all these various regimes using gender in similar, in some ways, you, if you take the broad spectrum, you can see that Nazism and, and, and national socialism use similar kinds of gender norms as socialism did, as did nationalisms, right? You can see the similarities and continuities across those things, even as, of course, there are important um, nuances and differences. But I would say that the big difference, right, is between those, all of those and what feminists try to do, which is a very different kind of ideology and advocating for flexibility and um, undermining structural inequalities based on gender. But this is where um, at least a few of uh, scholars have pointed at demographic nationalism, which has many of its contradictions um, as if um, gays and lesbians and uh, could not reproduce, of course they can, but they're dramatically um, trying to limit those options, even with 
adoptions. So if these controlled media environments as Hungary is unfortunately a horribly good example for that. If uh, these couples or individuals are portrayed as sick, unnatural, and not just sick and unnatural, but unacceptable, um, then they're building on many previously existing stereotypes. And you already mentioned, look at feminism as a Western import. I mean, we heard that during communism. These are very well-established frameworks. Um, and Doris Bus. Um, has also traced back for a few decades that the Vatican had a lot to do with figuring out what kind of resonant frameworks would work very well to maintain what appeared at that time their reduced effect. Um, so there is intellectual power behind it. And there are gender debates even among feminists. So this is not a unified front of, of two parties. Feminists are deeply divided like they have been in the early 1900s um, in a sense of, do we accept, do we incorporate the trans uh, uh, trends or do we again reject that? And, 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 and these are again context driven. Um, not every country acts the same way, but I, I really don't wanna create the, again, the East is somehow strange and different. If I may just highlight the QAnon with the mania of, uh, you know, the liberals are drinking uh, uh, children's blood. I mean, you don't need to be a medieval historian to recognize that anti-Semitic framework right there. Yes, indeed, that's absolutely true and chilling. Um, okay, I see we have uh, a question from Emily. Emily, go ahead and turn your mic on. Hi. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for this presentation. Uh, it's lovely to see you all, and I'm really excited for the book. Um, so I want to pick up a little on what Catalina was just talking about. <laughs> Sorry about the cat. Um, which is that you seem to have included uh, sexuality as part of this volume, um, which I don't, I don't think is necessarily, um, it's, it could, you, you didn't have to, right? Um, and I think one of the things, um, there's to some extent, there's kind of a collapse between thinking about gender and sexuality in the region because the response to feminism and the response to LGBT movements has largely been negative. Um, at the same time that we often think about these spheres as really distinct in Western academia. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about why you chose to put sexuality and LGBT movements and LGBT studies within this volume. Um, and if you have any kind of conclusions about the way that feminism has or hasn't adopted um, LGBT causes as part of it. That's one thing I think uh, was a little bit what Catalina was talking about just now. Thank you so much. Great question. Okay. Who wants to take that uh -huh. first? <laughs> I'll, I will start. I mean, I, you know, on some level, I wouldn't have included these. And this was like a conversation that we had, because if you go back to my presentation, right, I think the way that I think about intersectionality is that it has both intersectional and autonomous effects. And kind of in my, you know, very I was gonna say political sciencey brain, which is a whole, like is not what I mean <laughs> because there's a lot of but like this you know very analytical conceptual brain that I have that I got trained in political science. I would kind of take them apart, um, but I I think I at least I came around to the fact that we should and did in, to include them both because of what you suggested right that the anti gender movement really collapses the two, um, but also because 
it was part of my move away from, and there's my cat, <laughs> my move away from, um, from thinking about women to getting to those more conceptual and analytical questions about gender. And that, you know, to get away from this thinking about women, I, I wanted to get deep into thinking about all these various intersectional categories and that we couldn't really, you know, that, I mean, you could maybe argue that you could look at gender as an autonomous thing, but I think, I think we've done that enough that we needed to think about it much more intersectionally. And, and, and that sort of leads to how we came up with this ambiguity, which makes it very complicated. And I apologize if our presentation seems very complicated, right? This move between conceptual clarity and the complicatedness that we need to, to give um, real insight into the questions that God's, you know, made so simple in a useful way. But I think, you know, we're kind of balancing off that kind of simplified narrative of like women had better sex under communism. And, and um, I'm so glad Janet refers to one, one of the many debates we had. We, we invited all the um, contributors twice um, to workshops and plenty other opportunities, what we could create, both physical and online. Um, and I, I wasn't surprised that people argued that this is the topic which has to be in this volume. So maybe I was much less resistant <laughs> to this issue. I may have pushed actually a little bit on this regard because this is where the debate is, all right? You can act as femme as you wish. Nobody's gonna you know, be upset with you if you show your midriff and your boobs, whatever the way you wish, right? But if you are a guy, try to do that, all right? So it doesn't matter what the percentage is, how many, People claim that that's what their sexual identity is or they have developed to be, but this is where the political debate is. So I find it utterly important, um, politically, the most relevant. It does not matter what minority or not minority this is. This is the exclusion zone. This is the marginalization. And if we could have, we probably would have added more and we damn tried. <laughs> we couldn't because <laughs> people were not ready yet. But this is, this is where we need to think about. Uh, I, I really came to that place that feminists do need to engage it deeply. And let me, see, let me tell you, this is not where most local feminist organizations are because it's politically utterly inexpedient. You put yourself there, you will be in trouble. Do you want to be in trouble? <laughs> I mean, then you really cut off even your domestic violence hotline. No. <laughs> so mm. I, I, I understand why uh, there is this uh, decision. I just think it's a really long-term problematic decision. I understand where they come from, but I would love to have more about it because I have lost my now two friends based on that and I'm not happy about that. Mm. Wow. Okay, great. Um, uh, I don't see any other hands up. So let me uh, ask you this, a question that sort of came up in the chat indirectly. I'm going to give my own particular take on it. And that has to do with uh, reproductive rights. And, um, you know, you mentioned that is uh, one of the one of the phenomena you cover. Um, and it seems to me, you know, that, that there, there's sort of two different things that went on simultaneously. Like one is we do see uh, particularly in recent years, in some of the so-called transition countries or former Soviet-type societies, whatever you want to call them, I share your uh, challenge. I share the difficulty of trying to know how to talk about these countries as a group. But we do see uh, increasing uh, 
uh, moves to outlaw abortion, to restrict access to abortion. At the same time, you know, one of the one of the key developments related to gender reproduction following the uh, collapse of communism is the increased access that that immediately led to to contraception. So I guess you know the initial wave, one would think that you know abortion rates everywhere did go down in part because uh, couples and women in particular had more access to effective means of contraception. And that in turn, of course, is probably one proximate factor that uh, has contributed to the fertility declines we've seen in all these countries. It's simply women uh, gain more control over the option whether or not to bear children through contraception. And so uh, is that, you know, is it perhaps, I guess my question would be, you know, isn't that a, an example of a very complicated story where you see movements in both directions and then variations across countries in the extent of those various movements? that is reproductive health, reproductive uh, rights and so forth. I would love to show this segment again, but I would more, more than allow others to talk first. Um, if you wish, please go. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> our, uh, but Mara, Janet, no? They're throwing back. Okay, the, let me show this segment. Um, you, you really bring up so many issues and you know that what the contradiction there is. So uh, one of the contradictions is not one set of trends, uh, both through 30 years, it's multiple directions. But one of the first trends which took place, again, a minute after renaming the countries from People's Republic to Republic, um, or even dropping the Republic in some cases, um, is is a reproductive rights. Uh, but Poland goes this way because it had, you know, the first trimester was uh, relatively accessible during communism. So if we reject communism, we reject that too. Horrible, horror, killing babies, right? Children. Um, on the contrary, Romania, right? Where there was a dramatic, and I know we have some experts here in the, in the audience on this regard. So we have uh, contradictory trends. Um, there are also new um, other types of technologies uh, from the pill to multiple others, which many countries allow and bring in both as information and as travel. But again, Poland continues and maintains its enormously powerful and strong uh, across ideologies, women's movement, because there is no access or increasingly limiting, and the last few months showed that uh, process even to the most extreme. And women and men were out on the streets in a million, uh, even up to the very cold and COVID uh, uh, environments, uh, protesting literally for 30 years. Uh, and in, in other places, it's it's more a simmering issue, but there are many others everywhere the issue of reproduction is central to the governments, either for nationalist reasons or others. But Ashbieta Korolczuk's article and her research is about IVF and surrogacy. Now, I'm sending her routinely articles from the US and other parts of the world. Many of you probably have uh, seen uh, how during the early COVID period when travels got uh, dramatically decreased, uh, thousands of babies got stuck in Ukraine, right? The same thing goes for Georgia. Um, are these really choices? Is this a type of racist, um, unexamined uh, human trafficking uh, where, you know, relatively poor woman um, 
would would get both healthcare payment, et cetera, for carrying other people's babies who don't have that time or, uh, but they have plenty of money to pay others to do that. So it's like uh, not even hiring your nanny, but literally hiring a person who carries your child. So these uh, areas of, of hierarchy, colonization, name it, you know, uh, it, they're, they're new levels of, of global hierarchy where, where gender and woman and whose children are you carrying are these, you know, to two or one gay man's child um, who can pay for these services. I understand why people would be looking at it as this is the worst type of the neoliberal market where we are putting human bodies, including uh, born children onto the market. And, and this is, this is outrageous what we have done in this region. Literally, it's below proletaritization. It's trafficking in bodies and, and a type of slavery from sex slavery, etc. And it is deeply gendered. We also have a chapter on migration. Um, Alexandra Bloch's excellent uh, review, which shows that women choose, and, and that is their their decision to migrate, let it be to be an exotic dancers. Those of you may follow Egypt. This is a Ukrainian dancer who is like on top level. Um, and and um, many others who migrated uh, because they saw a much better future, much more respect. Um, let it be Masus in, in Turkey uh, or getting just enough money to send back home. Um, and eventually establishing some kind of a living. So there are multiple layers here. Uh, this is where I don't want to call unjudgmental, but a very clear analytical lens, which is both uh, the issue of coloniality in the contemporary times, which has a lot to do with the contemporary capitalist environment and gender. Um, I, I, in the transnational framework really makes sense and make these policy decisions, not on a national framework, but get, because even in Poland, anybody can travel. If you need abortion, if you're rich, you do it. I mean, it's not, it's not like it's out of your reach. It's just like between Ireland and the UK. Um, but, 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 but this is class and gender and nationality, what the countries are trying to, and with COVID, they indeed managed to close down those borders. Just to kind of add in, and thank you for that's such a broad brush of all the reproductive issues. But to kind of re, to to you know, this is I guess this this is the tension between her and, and me is that um, you know reproductive issues have always been the central focus of regimes, right? They're always trying since they developed the the technology in the 20th century to control reproduction. And what's so striking is that how they control it shifts, right? So I think Sonia Jaffe Robbins' question about abortion was not an anti-abortion um, uh, critique, as she points out, it's right, it's more about like the Soviet and the communist systems allowed abortion in general, except for Romania, but it wasn't it wasn't a feminist issue, it was advancing certain other goals. And I think partially they allowed abortion but not other contraception or they didn't um, encourage other contraception maybe so that women would suffer in a weird kind of way if they were going to limit their fertility. Um, and so you see the technologies of, of what gets regulated by the state shift as those technologies shift and as movements put pressure on access to other things. But at root, um, reproduction is, I think, the central thing that states try to control. And, and again, looking across this region and across this long century, you see how all of these various regimes try to use that as a way of controlling women and their population 
in different but similar ways. Let me add, there's one thing we certainly agree with Janet, probably more than one, <laughs> and that is every regime instrumentalizes women. There's, there's maybe a degree or they cover it better, but just because communism did it doesn't mean others don't. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point to keep in mind, absolutely. Um, okay, well, it's uh, it, we usually end at 5.15, and that's what time it is now, but uh, are there any other questions or quick comments uh, for our presenters today? Going once, going twice, well, you know, I, I have a lot of questions I'd like to ask, but I'm going to have to hold off on those myself, uh, and uh, certainly I look forward to receiving this book. Uh, this is a very was been a very rich and broad presentation, and congratulations uh, on this fantastic project. I think it's going to make a big impact. And uh, thank you very much for sharing your work with us today. Uh, Krika is uh, very appreciative of the chance to have heard about your rich studies.